Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Connecting to the big show. In three, two, one. We are saying as long as there is breath in our bodies, we will not forget you. If we don't deal with this issue now, the problem will get bigger. The lack of empathy. These women need to get over themselves. We're the one for Cork and ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The lines are live. Let's kickstart the conversation. This is The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. Good morning, Fiona Corcoran in for PJ Coogan uh, today and tomorrow. Uh, welcome to the show today. It is Tuesday, of course, and it is the midterm break. So there'll be a lot of people at home with their kids. And I'm sure they're going to be looking for lots of lovely activities to do over the week. So if you know of anything that's happening across the week that would be family friendly and good fun, let us know. 1850-715-996 or 083-396-9696. Now, of course, we also had the, the jazz festival over the weekend as well. Many places were packed out. We saw lots of videos and photographs on social media of large queues outside certain bars and uh, nightclubs across the city and county and you know it was the first weekend that restrictions had been lifted so if you were out and about over the weekend did you enjoy it were you did you feel safe did you feel comfortable with uh, you know crowds going into places and you know or or were you just still afraid i know that the the um the opinion on it was is very divided even amongst my own friends i was talking to somebody there the other day and she said that she feels it's too soon maybe to go out at the minute and she feels maybe a little bit anxious because she hasn't been out in so long. I was speaking to another friend who said that they were delighted everything was open and uh, they were able to go and it was lovely to hear live music. So what did you think yourself? Do you think that we're um, moving too fast or are you glad that you're able to go out? Were you out and did you feel safe and comfortable? Let us know. We'll take your calls here. Fergal is on the phone lines today. 1850-715-996 or 083-396-9696. Now, joining me on the line is Councillor and Dr. John Sheehan, Dr. John Sheehan of Blackpool. Uh, Dr. John Sheehan, thanks for joining us on the air this morning. Morning, Fiona. Uh, First of all, um, I know we spoke to you uh, briefly on Friday about people going out and enjoying themselves. Do you think that we are moving too fast in this country? I mean, we are hearing reports all weekend of hospital ICUs being overcrowded with people um, with COVID. Do you think that we're right to do what we're doing at the minute? I think, Fiona, there's an element of we're going to have to start living with this, even with the precautions that we're taking. So we can't um, keep, you know, the nighttime industry closed forever. Uh, we have to get back to some sense of normality and living. And you could see the pent up energy. I mean, there was a great buzz. I was in town Saturday afternoon and there was a mm-hmm. fabulous buzz around the place. Um, and you could see people really wanted to get back to living, um, you know, with some element of normality. We probably won't know for about another week, 10 days, and the effect of this, whether there's going to be a big increase. 
But, you know, I think we do have to start living with learning to live with COVID, notwithstanding all the restrictions of hand washing, masks and distancing and that sort of thing. I think we have to get back to some elements of normality. It's a year and a half. And I was struck by some young people who were interviewed um, going to a nightclub and someone asked them, will, it, will they be different? And they said, we don't know. We've never mm-hmm. been to a nightclub because for them, it's over two years of their lives, which is a huge amount of time at that age. Yeah, indeed. And I suppose, um, you know, we have been talking quite a lot on this show and just in society as in, in general about vaccinations. And, um, you know, I think that everybody thought when they got the vaccinations, they could go back to normal. Um, but, you know, I think that the strength of the vaccine is weakening and we're seeing evidence of that. Um, and there has been a campaign for a booster shot. How is that campaign going? It's going reasonably well, but although we do, do need some clarity, I mean, they've, they targeted the over 80s, which are probably the most vulnerable group with all of this COVID and people in nursing homes. So they were the first priority and that was absolutely the right thing to do. So most of them are being done or nearly done at this stage. And now they're going to the over 60s and those with compromised immune system. We do need some clarity and um Myself, along with all my other GP colleagues, every week we're on webinars with this, with the National Immunisation Office and others, mm. um, as to where do we start our mass vaccination clinics, which have been very effective. Are they going to start doing everyone? Do we start doing everyone? So um, are our pharmacies going to be involved? And we just need that decision and start getting on with vaccinating the others. And then the other issue, Fiona, that's coming up is should we be vaccinating healthcare workers? Um, because they were the, after the elderly, they were the other group that were that were perhaps most affected, um, and there is a strong argument for that in terms of protecting healthcare workers, but also reducing the chance uh, the chances of transmission within their workforce. I suppose you'd be expecting to get an answer on that pretty quickly, or you'd be hoping that you'd get an answer on that qu- pretty quickly. You really would, because um, on Friday we, we we finished pretty much finished vaccinating our over 80s and we're ready to go now and start vaccinating our other groups. So we just need carfee and we're hoping to get that this week because um, we just need to get on with it now. Because, as you said, the numbers in hospital is nearly 500 in hospital. There's nearly 100 in ICU. It's creeping up slowly all the time. And, you know, we didn't have in our own practice, uh, along with other practices, we didn't have a case for a few weeks. But now in the last few weeks, each day we're getting a few cases and I think that's typical um, everywhere and all of those people who have got it they have done everything right they got vaccinated Mm. they're minding themselves but it still breaks through and that's why you know the, the strong argument for the booster and the third and the third dose is there. We mentioned there at the start about midterm and a lot of parents um, will be looking to get their children vaccinated what can they do or where where can they go can they bring them to the vaccination centres? They can. I mean, the HSC have been operating walk-in vaccination centres, which have been really, really successful because a lot of people for work reasons or didn't get around to it or whatever needed to get the vaccine. And it was really, really successful to do that. And they advertised City Hall is continuing to do walk-in vaccination uh, centres and they just put it up on the uh, on the HSC website and you can see which days and which times. And that's really, really effective. And I would encourage uh, all parents uh, to get their get kids vaccinated, but even now we're still coming across adults or older people who, for whatever reason, maybe nervousness or whatever, 
didn't get vaccinated and I would encourage them to get vaccinated as well. Dr John Sheehan, just on another issue, I know uh, we're coming into Halloween weekend and one of the uh, parts of celebrating Halloween is of course fireworks and sparklers. Now the Echo have a story today on the front page um, and it's a plastic surgeon in the Bonds who's warning parents about giving sparklers to children at Halloween parties. Um, Anne McKenna, she's a consultant plastic surgeon at the Bond and she's saying that they're seeing children coming in with life-altering um, injuries as a result of sparklers. What kind of a warning would you give to parents? Absolutely, Fiona, and you're dead right, because every year this happens, unfortunately. Um, people think this, you know, fireworks won't happen. It's only the big fireworks that can cause damage. But it's actually the small ones tend to uh, cause most damage because people hold them in their hands or they're playing with them. Um, and people think sparklers are relatively harmless. But if you're a small child and if you grab it, it will cause significant damage to your to, to your skin and significant burns to your skin. And um, the skin of young you know young young children and toddlers and small children is very very sensitive. And the temperature um, of sparklers can reach you know about twelve hundred degrees, so it mm. can cause significant burns. And they um, the problem is they grab it and they squeeze it, and 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 the damage can be quite significant. So. You know, just be careful, mind themselves, they're not toys, they can cause damage, they can cause permanent damage and, you know, don't give them to children. Before I let you go, Dr Sheehan, we've just had a question in from a caller. What is the mix of booster and flu jab and how is it being scheduled and do you need a gap? No, you don't need a gap. You can get both of them at the same time. And the booster is is Pfizer. It's Pfizer for everyone. So if someone has Pfizer or AstraZeneca or Moderna, it's Pfizer for everyone. It's the booster. Um, and you can get the flu, flu vaccine at the same time. And can you just walk into a chemist to get it? Uh, there's a shortage. There, there, there is a shortage. We, we have a lot of flu vaccine um, for the over 65. It's a slightly different variant for the under 65. And there is a bit of a shortage of that. So people, so they're, they're generally prioritising the high-risk group for that at the moment. We're hoping the supply of that will, uh, it's just a worldwide shortage, the supply of that will increase. So that if you're under 65 and you don't have any underlying health conditions, you, you, you probably may have to wait a while. But all the chemists are doing the flu vaccines as well. Brilliant. Thank you so much for joining us Thank on you. The Opinion Line this morning, Dr. John Sheehan. Uh, now, Mary has called in the show. Good morning, Mary. Fiona. How are um, you, Mary? I'm fine, thank you. Listen, this was just an observation there. Um, I had children out at the weekend and they had very different experiences right. um, in various um, venues throughout the city. But one thing um, my 21-year-old son experienced was a lot of places having an over-22 policy. Over-22? Over-22. No. <laughs> That's furious age, and really, it was only when I was thinking about it, is it's because they're less likely to be students. Yeah, I have to so say, they I've have never more... actually heard of a, a 22-year-old yeah, and it, policy. And was, yeah, and it was, like, it was in several venues. That, and, of course, it's, it's the boys get caught as well with this, mm. because my 20-year-old daughter had no issues with some of the same venues. Because obviously the 20, over 20, or the 23-year-old boys or whatever in there are quite happy to mix with 20-year-old girls. Yeah, yeah. So it's a thing that's been, you know, enforced, I suppose, against boys who are, like, I, I don't know, I was just so cross, really, with listening to the poor mouth of these vintners mm. uh, over, you know, o- over the whole lot of COVID. And next thing... You know, they're not just happy to have people who will spend money in their premises. They're trying to target specific demographics who have 
yeah. more money to spend who are working and whatever. And like this didn't happen in my age. Most most people, the majority of people, mm. went straight from school into the workplace. I mean, like so I've definitely heard would of ever over eighteen is is the only. <laughs> if you're legally allowed to drink over eighteen in this country, mm. any place that sells liquor should. Be, you should be able to serve, be served in any of those premises. Yeah, I mean, I, I know think, that a lot of places operate a, a 21 policy, but I've never heard of 22, and I really don't see why you would have a 22. I mean, like, what's the difference between a 21 and a 22? And as you say, uh, if it's uh, just students. students. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just, I just think, but like, I mean, even over 21, the legal drinking age, if you have a license to sell drink, mm. and the person... Any person over 18 is entitled to buy drink. I just even don't get... Like, you can... There's loads of ways that premises can make places less attractive to younger age groups. You know what I mean? The music they play, the kind of decor, the lighting and everything all feeds into into this kind of... You know, into Mm. the atmosphere of the pub and makes it less attractive to... But as you say, if you're trying to attract a 23-year-old and exclude a 22-year-old, that's a very... You know, that's much harder for them to do. But it's just, I just think if you're, I'm just sick of listening to the poor mouth and then they're doing this, trying to maximise, you know, the commercial yeah. element um, on, on a weekend like the bank holiday. It's just, you know, it's it just shows exactly what's underneath this. It's just all they want to do is make money. They're not worried about people socialising mm-hmm. or having a good time. And they're quite happy to leave these kids Standing in that lashing rain on Saturday night, only to be told at the door that there's an over twenty-two policy. Yeah, I mean, because maybe there's somebody in the city who and you know it makes the place look very busy, and everybody's trying to get in. Mm. And next thing, they're turning away people at the door. It's just not on. And I mean, maybe there's somebody listening to the show this morning who could um, tell us why they have a 22-year-old policy, a policy for over 22s in place and they might like to get in touch with us on 1857 yeah. or 083 396 You said there that your daughter and, 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 well, is 20. My daughter, exactly, and had no... Um, in fact, there was a premise. She, went, she was neither asked for her COVID cert or her ID. Wow, okay, she wasn't asked for her yeah. COVID cert either. No. And did she feel safe, do you mind me asking, when she was out? Not particularly, no. actually, no. She's um, in a vulnerable group and she was kind of a bit concerned when she wasn't asked for her yeah. COVID cert because obviously that meant nobody, the chances were nobody else was either. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I'm sure, will it put her off going out again, do you think, or...? Um, no, not at 20. I don't think so, no. <laughs> Great. Listen, Mary, thank you so much okay. for contacting us here on the show this morning. If anybody else wants to get in touch, did you notice anything like what Mary was talking about over the weekend? Um, are, are you running a, a place where you have a 22-year-old, um, over 22-year-old policy and you'd like to let us know about it? 1850 or 0833 96 96 96. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now, 1850 715 On Cork's 96FM. Keep your comments coming in to us on 1850 or 0833 96, 96, 96 You can, of course, email us as well, opinion at 96fm.ie. Gráinne Lynch joins me now. Gráinne is the mum of uh, Liam Lynch. Good morning, Gráinne. Good morning, Fiona. How are you? I'm very well. I'm very well. How is Brian? 
Liam. Oh, Liam, sorry. How is Liam? Sorry. <laughs> he's fine. He's fine. He's enjoying his midterm. <laughs> so, Grong, you just tell me a little bit about Liam. He was in, he is in a wheelchair and back in um, 2019, he suffered very painful sores and he's at risk of suffering these sores again. Yeah, 2019, we ended up in the CUH for five months due to his him outgrowing his cushion in his wheelchair. Mm. Um, and if they had only sanctioned the uh, funding of his cushion, we wouldn't have been in that situation. Now we're looking at the similar situation where he is outgrowing his cushion um, and we're still actually dressing the pressure sore from 2019. So like he's still very vulnerable. And what have they said to you? Have they made any contact with you about getting no. this cushion? Nothing. No. No. No, um, we're kind of, we have to go through different various agencies, like so, uh, trying to get um, the OT, um, the physio, and then to get the, um, to get the um, quote from the medical company, and then for them to um, bring it to, to RAG to get the funding, it all takes an enormous amount of time, yeah. and time we don't really have. No, and I mean, do you know, Liam is, um, he was studying for his junior cert the last time and obviously yeah. this would have been, would have had a huge impact on, on his ability to study. Um, and he's, so he's obviously himself really worried now that he's going to end up in a similar situation. Yes, yes. And like that, it's his leaving cert year this year. Oh, God, <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're, he is quite concerned and, uh, but, we're kind of in, we're kind of in, what's waiting, waiting, waiting. And the the sores, the pressure, it's pressure sores. So the pressure sore, yeah, yeah. And um, if if that gets any worse, or if it gets to a point where it's so severe that he could end up needing skin graft surgery. They actually they had considered that last time, but they didn't think it was viable because Liam actually sits because Liam has to sit on his. Actually, sitting on his bum all the time, mm. it just wouldn't take. So that isn't enough. It won't be an option. Right. Yeah. And just tell me a little bit about Liam. Um, he has scoliosis. He's scoliosis, and that's another issue. Um, he wears a spinal brace um, for for postural and for to um, for the, for the scoliosis. And that brace is actually, he's grown out of that as well and it's actually causing him a lot of discomfort around the shoulder and back area. Um, again, we're waiting to get fitted and for the quote to be sent in for that as well uh, to go for, to RAG for funding. And he was diagnosed with a tumour in his spine as well? He was diagnosed when he was seven um, with an in- inoperable tumour um, when he was seven and as a consequence, um, developed scoliosis as well, so he's been living with that since uh, for the last eleven years. The poor fella, like it's just awful, isn't it? And you know, you as his mum, you must be just worried sick. I am very concerned. I mean, I suppose because we know what can happen if something doesn't happen, um, and where we can end up, which we don't want to happen again. Mm. And this is all so preventable. You know, we don't need to be in we don't need to be in this situation. Yeah. I mean, like, it just, like, the cushion that he needs, I mean, it's, it's obviously a special kind of a cushion, but um, you can only get that through the HSE, is it? Yes, yeah, yeah, they have to grant the funding. 
They have to get grant funding, is it? They, it goes towards a, um, what they call RAG and they make a submission and then they either fund it or they don't fund it or they wait to the next round of funding depending on how many submissions are made at the meeting at any given time. So, mm. you know, there's no guarantee that we will get funding this time around either because there's so many other um, agencies submitting for their, for their clients. You know, um, and every client is as needy as my son. So, I mean... You know, there's only so much money to go around, but yeah. um, and every person needs um, their aid, aid and appliances. Otherwise, there wouldn't be submission for them. And you you flagged the need for this back in August, and we're now at the end of October, and you still heard nothing back. Um, yeah, it's very very slow, very slow. You know, we're waiting five years for a shower chair for Liam. Um, we're five waiting years. Five years for a shower chair. Um, we're still waiting for a manual chair. If anything happens to his power chair, like Liam is confined to bed. So, you know, um, and these are basic pieces of equipment. Mm. Um, but it just seems to take an enormous amount of time to get anything. And as you say, he's 18 now. He's studying mm. for his leave and search. He really doesn't need to be worrying himself about these kind of issues. No, but also, like, um, for his own independence. I mean, like, mm. he needs to be showering himself, not have his parents, you know, assisting him. And also, mm. like, um, if he wants to go uh, out for, um, with his buddies, like, he can't, you know, if they're driving, like, he mm. can't go in with them because he doesn't have his manual chair, like, to be able to transfer into the chair and go with them, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. It's just, very ba- like, things we take for granted. Um, mm. He can't. Yeah, God. And I mean, I'm sure, you know, after his leaving start, he's going to want to go to college and, and yeah. do things that anybody his own age would want to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, that, that's the thing, like, I mean, for him to get a car, like, is <laughs> uh, about, about 30,000 about 30, for him to get a car, like, he can drive. Mm. Most most kids are getting cars for about five or 6,000. You know, it just kind of makes it, puts everything out, makes it a lot more expensive just because they have a disability. Yeah. So I suppose you're you're calling on the HSE now today to to do something for Liam and, and to come out and assess the situation and, and, you know, look at this cushion and, you know, grant you the money to get it. Well, what, what, what I would like or love is that they have a database set up that every kid is flagged. So mm. when they, if, if something needs, that they know it's in good time and they can then start the process, start the process and and hurry the and make it move the the whole process along faster rather than waiting until an accident or something happens and then end up in hospital when there's no need for that to happen. Yeah. Gronya, you might let us know how you get on, keep in touch with us and let us know and all the best for yourself and Liam. I will. Thanks, Gronya. Thanks for the call. Thank you. Thanks for for contacting us here on the opinion line. Uh, if you want to get in touch with anything, 1850 715 Just in relation to the conversation I had with Mary earlier about age restrictions in bars, she was saying that her son couldn't get into a number of bars in town because they were operating an over 22s policy. Um, somebody has been in touch with us here to say there are a number of establishments that are over 23s in the city. It's the right of the owner to restrict who goes through the doors. Absolutely young people have a right to drink alcohol but the right to enter 
enter a premises is not theirs. Emily has just contacted the show about antisocial behaviour. She says she was coming home from work on Saturday night and she was ashamed. Disgusting scenes on Blarney Street. Kids around 18, all puking. Women were fighting like wild animals. Some kids looked about 15, all hanging around outdoors. Never so embarrassed to be a Northsider. A total letdown. And that came in from Emily. Thank you, Emily. Did you spot anything like that over the weekend? Were you out and about? Did you feel safe when you were out? Did you feel confident that, you know, that your that your health and safety was was uh, being protected? Let us know. 1850 715 or 93 Now, it is midterm and a lot of our our kids and children are at home and we're spending a lot more time with them this week. So how do you... um how do you approach your children or your teenagers if they're acting up? Eileen Keane Haley is from Jumpstart Your Confidence and she joins me this morning. Good morning, Eileen. How are you? I'm very well, I'm very well. Thanks for joining us on the Opinion Line this morning, Eileen. Um, yeah, kids and, and teens, like, they're acting up and I think, you know, a lot of parents, especially if they're feeling under pressure, they might just, like, shout, even though they know they're not supposed to. But is there a, a way of, of dealing with your children and your teens when they're acting up? Well, I think, you know, I suppose we all have to remember our kids and teens will act up when they're at home. You know, they need to be able to act up somewhere. I always feel if they are, if they're behaving themselves outside when they're visiting family and other people's houses, we've done something right. But they do need to be able to let off steam. And that will invariably be at home and it'll be invariably with the mum. But I think from the mum's point of view, you know, try and take a few deep breaths, walk away. A lot of these reactions aren't worth it because once we react, we're going to heighten everything anyway. Mm. Now, I'm not talking about kids being disrespectful. <clears throat> I'm just talking about kids who might be tired, who might be just bored, who might be just in bad form, you know, teens who might be hormonal, whatever it might be. But <clears throat> if we keep reacting, we're upsetting us, we're upsetting them. So just take a breath and ask yourself, is it worth it? You know, will I just walk away? And sometimes we do have to walk away. There's days I've gotten into the car and driven away. Um, you know, it is hard. And I think mums... We do kind of beat ourselves up a lot. I think, you know, if we do lose the plot, which is very understandable and will happen, just be big enough to say sorry. You know, don't leave the kids hanging wondering why we lost the plot with them or why we're shouting and roaring or why, you know, something's gone on and we've reacted unnecessarily. Just go back and say, look, I'm sorry. I didn't mean it. Um, You pushed my buttons. This is about me, maybe, you know, and some mums, as we said, could have their own stuff going on. They might be trying to work from home. They could be hormonal themselves. There's so many different issues that can be going on that I think as mums, we just need to be a bit softer in ourselves. And you say that there are three questions that you can ask your children. Well, you know, it's just a good habit. Now, again, this is something that's not always going to work because we might not always be in the right frame mind. But what can help is if, you know, if you ask them, sometimes just ask them, do they want advice? Do you want me just to listen to you or do you want space? Yeah. But what that does in the long term is it can allow our kids to understand what they need emotionally. And it might work for a while. But if you get in the habit of repeating the same process with your kids, it does become something very normalized for them. So, you know, sometimes we jump in with advice the minute they're upset or they start rambling on about something. A lot of the time they don't need advice. They just need to be listened to. They just need to let it out. And sometimes that's enough. And like if you're in the heat of the moment and everybody is, um, you know, <laughs> a little bit tense and angry, is it difficult to just sit down and ask your kids these questions and have them to, oh, of course ask, to listen to you? 
Of course it is. I mean, at times you might just say to them, look, I'm not putting up with this behaviour now. I don't know what's going on with you, but go away and calm down and we'll have a talk about it after. Yeah. Because there is no point in trying to communicate like that when they're actually at the height of it. Just like there's no point in them trying to communicate with us like that when we're mm. at the height of it. Do you know what I mean? It is a two way street. I mean, um, but we are the adults in the situation. So it is a good idea just to say, look, I'm going to come back and talk to you about that. But put a reminder in your phone, write it down somewhere. Don't forget about it. Do come back and do when everybody's a little bit calmer, try and have the open up the conversation to see what's going on. I suppose it can be really hard because for teens, the natural reaction is not to speak and not to open up. Yeah. But a lot of the time, just knowing that you get it and that you understand that they're frustrated or maybe there's friendship issues or there's something happening, just giving them a hug, just letting them know that you're there for them at times mm. can actually be enough. And a lot of the time with younger children in particular, they could be acting up because they want your attention. Of course they will. I mean, kids will want your attention. They'll do anything to get it. And if that mm. means bad behaviour gets your attention better, then bad behaviour you're going to get. Um, and then I suppose a lot of the time the behaviour is just hiding a feeling of something that's going on. And, you know, sometimes for small, for all kids, actually, and teens, yeah. something could be happening in their life that we might consider minor and we're not giving it the time it deserves. But if they're reacting then it's a big deal for them so you know whether it's a five-year-old going out to school and her pigtails aren't straight or a teenager coming home and being really upset because maybe no one's talking to her in school we don't know what's going on in their head unless we give them a chance you know to explain it to us or to just chat calmly and I think sometimes it really does help sharing your experiences yourself with your kids you know that maybe you went through a rough time or there was times that you couldn't talk to your mom or there was times mm. that you had issues with your friends just normalizing it for them because all they they just hate feeling different then you know they hate feeling excluded they hate feeling people don't understand so it's just being a little bit gentler around it and maybe and i do think that sharing your own experiences is huge whether that's the mom or the dad is relevant We've had a question in from a caller. Um, she wants to know what your advice on this. She says, there's a lot of advice given to parents about how to speak to kids. Parents can only do their best. I think there's scope for schools to address children about the problems of raising a household nowadays. In fact, in the past, if you go on YouTube, you will see educational videos like this were shown to kids. What do you think about that? Do you think that schools need to, to do more? Well, that they Look, I think to be fair to schools, and I wish we were in a different situation, that our ridiculous, archaic system had been changed 20 years ago. Mm. But alas, it hasn't, and it doesn't look like it will be for another while. Our system, our curriculum is so full, a lot of it unnecessary, but it is so full, they don't even have time to deal with mental health properly. You know, yeah. I mean, we are failing them drastically. I, You know, that caller, absolutely, it is a two-way street. But I think if we shout and roar at our kids, they're going to shout and roar at us. Yeah. I'm not saying it's easy. I know it's not. I have four kids. I've done. I've been there yeah. a million times over. But if you take a breath and walk away, you'd be surprised at just what that does. If you decide I'm not going to open my mouth until they stop talking and give them a chance to just finish what they started out with, you'd be massively surprised at the difference that will make. And, you know, just, again, not reacting to the unnecessary stuff. I'm not saying we, we accept disrespect from our kids. Of course we don't. But there's a difference between disrespect and just an emotional child. Mm. And I think our kids are growing up in a very difficult time. You know, I work with A to 18s. There's a massive increase in nastiness, in friendship issues, 
in lack of confidence because of social media and God love them comparing themselves daily. Yeah. Like there's so many things going on in these kids' lives when they walk out the door in the morning to schools. We have no idea what they're experiencing. And if, we, if they don't have that safe place at home to let it off, then where do they go? You yeah. know, they do need us. And it is hard. I think it's the hard. I don't think it is the hardest job on earth because they will take us to every height of emotion. But there are kids and I feel we're only as happy as, you know, our most unhappy child. So if there's something going on with our kids, that affects our lives 100 percent. And Eileen, you know, I, I mean, like I know that like tensions can rise, particularly when people are tired or when they're under pressure or under stress. And we've been speaking a lot um, about perimenopause in particular. And a lot of mothers may be going through the perimenopause and are trying to deal with their children as well. Um, have you got any advice for parents who are... Oh, look, <laughs> this is stage? horrendous. I mean, I went through this and I actually didn't even know there was such a thing as mm. perimenopause. I still had my period, so I was going, why am I so demented? I didn't even enter my head that it was something to do with my hormones. And I was overreacting. I was doing everything now I'm just saying don't do. Mm. I was shouting and roaring. There was words coming out of my mouth and I was kind of going, who is that person? You know, it wasn't me. And that is so upsetting. I mean, I would say to every mom out there who is feeling that they're just not themselves, trust in yourself because nobody else knows what you're feeling and nobody else knows exactly what's right for you. Go and get help. Talk to your friends. We need to be a lot more open and an awful lot more honest about how we are feeling. I think, you know, I, I work with that age group, so I work with a lot. I speak to a lot of mums. And I do think there's this big thing about, oh, we can't be talking about menopause. It means we're over the hill. We're getting old. Yeah. I mean, cop on. Like, you know, this is part of being a woman and we're all going to go through it. And it's different for everybody. But if you feel that you are different for you, you feel you're not yourself, you know you're overreacting, you've got to get help. And there's loads of help out there. Like, you know, for me, I know it was exercise really helped me. I definitely always took my evening primrose, my B-complex. And there's one called Menno Mini, which personally for me was fantastic. But we have to get advice and we have to get help because, as I said, parenting is so hard. We don't need anything else. And it affects our parenting and that affects our kids, you know, big time. Big time. And I Eileen, frightened my kids. And Eileen, if people want to get in touch with you, it's jumpstartyourconfidence.com. Yeah, absolutely. And they can. there's a mini email and a mobile and a landline on that. So they okay. can contact me either way. Brilliant. And I'm happy to give anyone any bit of advice if they want to just drop me an email. Great stuff. Eileen, thanks so much for joining us on the Opinion Line this morning. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083-396-9696. On Courts 96 FM. Just to remind you that the Premier League Live is back this Saturday on 96fm.ie with Trevor Welch, powered by TalkSport. And we'll bring you live coverage of Leicester City versus Arsenal at 12.30, Liverpool v Brighton at 3 and Spurs take on Manchester City at 5.30pm. The Premier League Live online with now Stream Live Premier League action back with a now excuse me I can't read what's in front of me here this morning the Premier League live online with now stream live Premier League action with a now sports or sports extra membership your sport on your terms stream only the games that matter to you most with now.ie listen Saturdays on the Cork's 96FM app or go to 96FM.ie now I got it out eventually Uh, now Sharon Morrissey is a conflict resolution specialist based in North Cork and she was on the show with PJ a couple of weeks ago and she mentioned something that we wanted to 
bring her back on to look at a little bit more and that's about people going back into the office after being at home for nearly uh, two years for 19 months and how they're going to deal with conflict in the workplace. Good morning Sharon. Good morning, Fiona. How are you? I'm very well. I'm very well. Now, Sharon, a lot of people have been dealing with conflict in the workplace over (laughs) online and over Zoom calls and team calls. And it's very different when you have to deal with it in person, isn't it? Yes, it is very different, I suppose, over the last year and a half. Now, it's not to say that we didn't have conflict because we certainly did uh, Mm. when people were online as well. But... um, there's a difference between the online and real life, as I call it, conflict. I suppose when we're in real life, the face to face interactions happen much more often. And so when somebody is in conflict, it, it has a much more um, ingraining impact on us because we're there in in it with mm. the people that we're in conflict with all of the time. So um, it has a pretty significant, it can have a pretty significant impact on mental, physical, emotional well-being and health. Like a lot Um, of people don't naturally like conflict. And like when we talk about conflict, we're not talking about big blazing rows here. We're just talking about differences of opinions that need to be sorted out. But why do people find, find it so difficult? Well, I suppose we all have different kind of ways of dealing with conflict. Like, And so, you know, some people are accommodating, some people are collaborative, collaborative. Some people avoid it. Some people compete, love conflict and some mm. people compromise in conflict. So, you know, we all have different styles and we can kind of move from style to style depending on the situation we're in. So we could be very collaborative or compromising at home. But in work, we might be really, you know, competing. So it depends what is in our interests at the time. So I suppose conflict arises when, you know, somebody feels that their needs are not being met. Mm. Or that somebody is trying to take something away from us, from us, and we have to fight to to keep our space safe. You know, so that yeah. could be like in terms of a job, it can be task orientated. I'm doing this, or it can be, you know, again with interpersonal relationships. If somebody feels disrespected, so I think we mentioned the last time that it's about, you know, kind of being seen and our needs being met and if they're not being met that can cause a conflict. And why is it different then in person and over a Zoom call? Is it because when we're in person you're able to read the entire body language of somebody? Yes, that's one of the reasons. But there's, a, I suppose there's a couple of things to note as well. Like when you're on a Zoom call, um, do you know, there's this what's called um, the online inhibition effect where people sometimes can say and do things online that they'd never actually say in person, you know, if they were standing in front of you or sitting yeah. in front of you. Um, and that is, you know, because usually when you're on Zoom, you kind of lose a little bit of empathy for your colleagues, you know, because they're at the end of a camera. Yeah. Whereas when people are online, it or when people are in person, it takes a lot more for somebody to or do something that might upset you again, because you've built this relationship, be it a positive or not so positive relationship with somebody. But it takes a bit more effort, you know, to kind of say something, you know, to cause the conflict as such. Um, And again, we have to also be very aware that like conflict can be real or perceived. So, you know, you can feel that you know I, I've really been hurt in something or you know there's a conflict here mm. whereas the person who has said or done something might not have you know meant it that way so it's really about like looking at our communication styles and our communication skills and is that process in place within your company 
within your organization that you can say to somebody, listen, I need us to have a chat about, you know, what you said there earlier. Can we, you know, in the first instance, can we go and have a cuppa and sit and talk about it? And if that doesn't work, you know, there are other means and ways of of dealing with the conflict afterwards. And if there is something that you want to address with a colleague, but, Mm. um, you know, you're you're afraid for whatever reason it is and you think, okay, if I just ignore it, it might go away. But, you Mm. know, what advice would you give to somebody in that situation? Because oftentimes it doesn't go away and it's festering there. no. Yeah, it usually doesn't. But I suppose the the big thing is not to be afraid of conflict, like, because, you know, most of the time, you know, when conflict is managed well, like it will increase trust and respect and communication within the company or organisation that you're working in. Mm. So I like from it really comes from the top down and bottom up, whereas, you know, if there's an open door policy with your management team or, you know, those that are kind of up the chain of command in, in your business that, you know, if somebody has an issue that, there is, as I say, that open door policy, you can go in and you can say, listen, you know, I'm having an issue with such and such. And the first type of advice that you're getting from your manager is, have you spoken to that person directly about it? Mm. And if a person feels that they can't do that, you know, that the manager is saying, "Okay, well, look, I can sit in the room with both of you and like facilitate this conversation a little bit. Now, some people find that that works really well. And as a first, in, you know, well, maybe second instance, first instance would be I would be able to talk to you, you know, independently of anybody. OK. Mm. And then the second instance would be where if we didn't get something sorted, we'd be bringing our manager into it. Some people find that that's, you know, quite a vulnerable and it is an absolute vulnerable place to be for for both parties, because you will have kind of the left brain thinking like of I'm right and you're wrong and I have to say I have to prove why I'm right and the other person has to prove why they're right. So you're actually almost entrenching positions, do you know? Yeah. So it's really important that just this open communication is there all of the time. And if that comes from, you know, even at interview process, you're asking people, OK, so how do you manage conflict? You know, do you, do you manage it well? Are you afraid of it? You know, what what type of conflict management style do you have? And I know companies are doing that more now. They're, you know, doing different types of scientific, you know, um, tests on how people yeah. manage conflict and things like that. But, you know, the more information you have as a manager on how to manage and deal with conflict within your staff, the better it will be. But that's not taking the onus off the individuals either. Okay. You know, when there is a conflict, People have to take responsibility for it. Sharon, thank you so much for joining us again on the Opinion Line this morning. And if anybody is listening to that, hopefully it gives them some ideas for in the workplace. And, uh, you know, if they want to address something that's on their mind, hopefully this will give you the tools now to go and do it. The lines are live. And we're ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. Fiona Corcoran in for PJ Coogan today and tomorrow on the Opinion Line. Uh, David has been in touch to let us know that at the Blarney exit off Mallow Road, there's a man chasing a swan and it could be dangerous. And he says he should put that swan on a lead. So if anybody is in that area, just be um, wary of that. Thanks very much for that, David. Other comments coming into us with regards to COVID certs. Hi, Fiona. I was out in McCroom at a family event on Friday evening. None of us were asked for COVID certs. I was taken aback and it was 
quite busy. Um, I've heard of that from a number of people now. I have to say, I was out at the weekend and everywhere I went, I was asked for my COVID cert, but we have been getting a lot of people contacting the show here and even people that I've been talking to out socially have said that they've been at places that haven't asked for COVID cert, which is disappointing. Um, Somebody else has been in touch to say after the carry-on of the vaccinated over the weekend, if there's a spike in COVID cases, it's, it's only the vaccinated can be blamed. How can the unvaxxed be blamed when they weren't allowed entry to venues? Let you let us know what you think on any of those topics. 1850-715-996 or 0833-969696. Now, a study has been carried out that shows that only one in seven inter-county footballers stop playing after signs of concussion. And the co-author of the report, Derek Sockel Randall, joins me now on the line. Derek, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. And thank you for joining us. Um, this is actually quite worrying that only one in seven intercounty footballers would stop if they are showing signs of concussion. Um, what else have you been finding? I mean, like, why is it? Um, why are only one in seven stopping after signs of concussion? Is it because they're trying to portray this kind of a tough man image, or is there something else? Yeah, I think it's uh, a multiple of factors. So we, we did a first study in football, like Gaelic football, which we found very similar results to hurling. And mm. I would say the reasoning for it is because you often have understaffed teams. So first, you only have about one medical practitioner slash physio per team. And you're asking them to judge a head contact or a concussion that could potentially be 40, 60 meters across the pitch. Um, when you add in the fact that these players are wearing helmets and a lot of people kind of think that these helmets are protective against concussion when in reality they're not, they're more so used just to limit facial injuries. Um, these can kind of lead to the high rates that we see of players not being assessed. And I mean, your study found that 87% of players were assessed by medical personnel if there was some sort of head contact on the pitch, but um, the remainder received no assessment before returning to play. That's quite worrying. Yeah, I, and I think that number of 80, the over 80% number is actually a little bit misleading because a lot of those assessments, I think we found that over 80% of those assessments were less than a minute in duration. And when you factor in that a concussion assessment takes a minimum of 10 minutes to complete, you can kind of add up that they're not receiving the care they should be. And is it the same across all sports or are there differences between, say, rugby, Gaelic football, soccer? I would say from our our perspective, the GAA itself, it's been the same across the board. The numbers have been very comparable in our two studies that we performed over the two seasons. But when you look at sports like rugby as well as the North American sports, they actually have a much greater rate of concussion assessment as well as a better fidelity, I should say, to the concussion protocols. And that's because they actually have dedicated video footage. Um, So they have a special team that actually analyzes the game separate to both teams and looks for head contacts and identifies players that should come off the field. Um, So that would be a method that I think the GA should potentially maybe employ in the future if funds were available to help players get assessed appropriately. Would it be down to amateur status of the games? Um, You know, a lot of players might see it as an honour rather than a job, but they want to continue on themselves. Um, Yeah, I think that's a a huge issue in and of itself. You you have these players who aren't getting massive salaries who have finally made it to the highest level of the sport they've dreamed of since a child of being in. Mm. And then you potentially are asking them to come off the field for a head contact that they necessarily feel fine. And that's a big issue is the kind of concussions can kind of manifest 
one to two days later mm. with the symptoms. So in the you know immediate time right after head contact, you may feel absolutely great. You may feel that there's nothing wrong with you. And if you have a doctor telling you that you need to get off the field, you're you're probably not likely to listen, especially when you only have maybe one to two games a week in a shortened season with all the COVID regulations. And if you're saying to yourself, well, I actually feel fine, and you're telling the medics that you feel fine, and, you know, there would be, I suppose, that, um, you, you know, mindset to say, all right, well, I'm grand, I'll, I'll just carry on. But, you know, when they do that, if, if there has been some sort of head contact and they feel fine, but then two days later, concussion sets in, I mean... What kind of danger are they putting themselves in by by not heeding the medical advice? Oh, I would say a massive amount of danger. Um, firstly, it's been well studied that any kind of pre-traumatized brain or a brain that's suffered a contact and receives a subsequent another contact following that contact, the magnitude of, I guess, destruction or the magnitude of um, effect on the player is magnitudes greater. So it's a lot higher the effect than if it were just a simple head contact. So you're talking about, you know, potentially long-term health risks such as early onset dementia. A lot of uh, research has now been focused on what's called CTE or chronic traumatic encephalopathy. So you'll see that a lot in American football. And I wouldn't be surprised if we start seeing that in the future with regards to more European sports such as um, football slash soccer or Gaelic hurling and football. And part of your study as well, um, Derek, was that people who suffer multiple concussions in a short period of time can result in second impact syndrome, which is potentially fatal. I mean, you know, is there enough being done about that? Is there enough awareness of that? Um, I think the well, from our paper, we saw that, you know, the majority of players wish to receive more education on concussion and its impacts. And I think Mm. You know, it's a very taboo term in the media now. It's very common to hear a concussion, but many people don't understand the full grasp of its consequences and its ramifications. So I think educating the players of the potential dangers of continuing, as well as, you know, emphasizing that this could limit your career long term, maybe mm-hmm. not so much in the interim, but in the long term, then I think it may be more resonant with players because they may realize that they may not have the longevity they wish to have. And because we have such a high percentage of players continuing to play on after a head injury or a head contact, um, is this kind of mentality feeding down then to the junior teams? And is there a danger then that um, they're learning this approach rather than, you know, OK, I have had a head injury, I should come off? Um, I, w- I would say that at the junior level, I, w- I would be very surprised if this is not happening to a worse extent. Um, often with yeah. these junior level teams, you don't have a medical doctor on the sideline. You might have a parent who's, you know, healthcare based, or you might have, you know, one parent in the team that's maybe physio or, or some kind of healthcare basis. But I'd be very surprised if the children are receiving the appropriate care. Um, you know, we're looking at the highest level. So you're talking about the most amount of funding, the most amount of viewership and the highest level of audience eyes on it. So it's obvious that this has to be the example set so that the younger um, levels as well as the lower levels can follow. And I think that if it's happening at the highest level, I would be very surprised if it's not happening much worse at the lower levels. And I know with hurling in particular, helmets are worn. Uh, how much protection are they giving against concussion? So that's a, that's a big misconception is that the hurling helmet, although it provides a barrier and it may um, help with regards to limiting some of the minor contacts to the head, it was really brought in to limit facial injuries. So that means like broken noses, poked out eyes, Um, lost teeth, those those sort of injuries. Mm. It's actually not designed to prevent concussion. 
So when you compare it to, I guess the most similar would be a North American hockey helmet or an ice hockey helmet. Hmm. That has millions of dollars worth of research behind it. Um, It also has a cutaway flap in the top of the helmet. It's much more heavy duty. The plastic used is a lot more rigid and firm. It also has a memory foam interior as opposed to the simple styrofoam interior. And I would say the most important aspect is it's standardized. So a lot of hurling helmets, all the players have modifications to their hurling helmets, uh, such as like adjusting the chin strap, lowering the cage for better visibility. They even cut out sometimes a little bit of the cage bars so they can see a little bit better. So when you start making all these modifications, it becomes really hard to know how much protection these players are actually being afforded by these helmets. And I so think do you medical think that staff, here they need to uh, relook at the at the helmets and um, design them more on that uh, on the ones that they wear for ice hockey. Yeah, well, I mean, that's going to be our next study now is what we're looking at now is going through the footage again and seeing what helmets the players were wearing um, and seeing which helmets kind of led to the most concussion signs or lack of concussion signs Hmm. and hopefully lead to some sort of standardization. I think that's the most important thing is that the helmet needs to be standardized so that you don't have one player with one modification versus another and you don't know who's getting the better protection slash if they're even getting any protection with regards to head contacts. So do you think then that it wouldn't be a case of just designing a whole new helmet rather than modifying the one that they have at the minute? I, I think the modification is, is a viable route. I would say to redesign a new helmet would take a lot of money and I don't know if that money is in the GAA to necessarily yeah. devote all that to. But I do think the helmet provides a, a foundation to build off of it. But I do think there needs to be stronger modifications. For instance, the memory foam interior potentially a cutaway flap in the front of the helmet to prevent head to head, like crown to crown hits. So I think those would be the two aspects that need to really be focused on and making sure that it is standardized. Derek, if anybody wants to have a read of your study, where can they find it? Um, you can just uh, go online and look up um, hurling concussion and it'll be one of the first Google searches right there. But it is available from the Irish Journal of Medical Science is the official publisher. I suppose it's something very interesting for club owners and for parents alike. Of course, yeah, and I, I hope that all the, all the children, all the players out there are getting the care they deserve. That was the main purpose of this study, was just to make sure we are assessing them the way we should be. Right, okay. Derek Sokol-Randall, thank you very much for joining us on the Opinion Line this morning. What do you think? Would you be glad if they just redesigned the whole helmets? Do you think that it's unfair on players to be expected to, to stay on the pitch afterwards if they've had a head injury? Are you a player? Have you suffered concussion and have stayed on? Let us know. 1850-715-996-083-396-9696. Caller has been in touch to say, why are people able to get around the law regarding dining, etc., by booking in overnight to any hotel in Ireland. Portugal only allow proof of vaccination or results of PCR tests, etc. Guests only have guests only. I have given up on holidaying in Ireland for the above reasons. Hotels are losing out by being too clever. Then again, maybe they are full anyway. It's disappointed. It's disappointing. Thank you for that and keep your comments coming in to us on 1850 Now we've been hearing quite a lot, um, particularly during the pandemic, about inequalities in the healthcare system and about um, how women are not being represented properly. And joining me now to discuss um, male bias in healthcare is Dr Dr. Sarah Fitzgibbon. Good morning. Good morning, Fiona. Dr. Sarah Fitzgibbon, I was reading some of the um, articles that you had mentioned and, um, you know, it's 
what what kind of struck me was um, about the research that's done on a lot of um, on a lot of medical issues, and a lot of the research is done on men, which is really quite surprising. Yes, so I suppose traditionally over the last hundred years or so, since there has been research, we'll say into things like uh, drugs or medication. The majority of the time, in fact, 99% of the time, that research has been carried out um, on young men, usually. Mm. And uh, because of that, every type of medication, whether it's a medication that might be used for women or for men, um, has all been tested on on young men. So these would be the drug trials where people choose to uh, take a medication for a period of time and find out if it's effective or if it has side effects or if there's any reason why the medication um, should be given at a particular dose. And what happens is that the uh, men in the trial go through all of this and at the end of it, the drug company decides, yes, this is a good medication or no, this medication has these side effects and we shouldn't we shouldn't use it. Mm. Um, but So that would mean that uh, even for things like the contraceptive pill, that would have been tested originally in young men and not in women. That actually seems so crazy. And apart from inequalities, um, there's actually a danger to that, isn't there? Because, I mean, men and women are made up differently. Absolutely. So there's, I suppose there's two sides to it. First of all, you could find that a medication uh, doesn't work for women when you do give it to women um, once the trial is completed and, and the medication has been uh, marketed. Uh, it might mean that it works really well uh, in a male body, but it doesn't work particularly well in a female body mm. or that the dose might need to be different for uh, a man versus a woman, when, when, which when you think about it, uh, you know, a lot of the time the female body will be uh, potentially smaller than a male body. And we're used to changing medication doses, we'll say maybe for children, um, but we don't think about changing doses between between the sexes, between the genders. So um, that's one aspect of it. The other thing is that sometimes the medication might have been tested in men and found to be not useful or to be not effective. But it, if it had been tested in women, it might have been found to actually be useful for a specific condition in women. And an ex- example of that is actually um, with uh, the medication Viagra, which people would be familiar with, mm. uh, which was originally tested um, in relation to uh, heart disease and blood pressure, but was found to have uh, another side effect, which is what it is currently used for and marketed for um, for men. But it turns out that that medication, Viagra medication, might actually have been useful for women who were suffering from painful periods. Right. Um, but that was never fully fully explored uh, in the research because, again, it wasn't being trialed uh, in women and it has just come, sort of come out afterwards from other researchers. Um, but they find it very difficult then to get the funding for uh, extra research or new research into a medication like Viagra. Uh, and to see how effective it might be for other indications uh, for women. Sarah, you're the founder of Women in Medicine in Ireland Network and um, the the whole idea behind women is to support, promote and encourage female doctors and medical students in Ireland. So is there a change now in the way a lot of these um, medicines are being tested or are we still, do we still have a long way to go? Well, there is still a long way to go. But yes, I'm the founder of the Women in Medicine in Ireland Network. And we do know that in recent years, there are many, many more women working in medicine and researching in medicine. And that's likely to make an impact on the type of research that's done and the type of forward thinking that might be um, brought in around issues to do with to do with women. Mm. And the. more recently, there has, in fact, been a, a, a trial that has been carried out amongst pregnant women, which would be a, a group of women which 
uh, would very uh, would be very rare for them to be involved in any kind of clinical trial because people were so nervous about giving medication, obviously, understandably, yeah. uh, for women who are pregnant. But uh, Professor Fanula Neonla um, is a hematologist, a woman who works um, in Dublin in relation to blood clots. And she is part of an international trial and which is specifically doing uh, a trial for women who are pregnant and trying to prevent things like blood clots in the legs or the lungs, which can be extremely serious. So this would be an example, I suppose, of a woman who's working within medicine, who has uh, made great efforts, uh, along with uh, Dr. Jennifer Donnelly as well, mm. in trying to make sure that women who are vulnerable, who would have been excluded from trials in the past, which would have meant then that there was uncertainty about the best treatment for, for blood clots in pregnant women, that they are making um, these great efforts in trying to ensure that those women uh, are included in the trials and that the best type of treatment then is is researched carefully and then is is, is possible to administer. And Sarah, I know that the, found out that the members of women, uh, one of the areas that they discuss is inequalities experienced by female doctors in certain specialities. Like what kind of areas are female doctors experiencing these kind of inequalities and it must be really frustrating for them. Yes, so I suppose female doctors are no different to uh, women in working in any other job or in any other profession where we would experience uh, gender-based um, discrimination from the point of view of the gender pay gap, for example. So yeah. on average, over a woman's lifetime, a female doctor's lifetime, they will earn less than a male doctor. They will also have less of a pension fund when they come to retire. And again, this is not just for, for doctors, but it does occur in do with doctors that uh, there is this uh, gender pension gap. So on average, women will have less of a pension pot uh, than their male counterparts. Women, uh, female doctors will experience more in um, um, bullying, more gender based discrimination, both from colleagues and from patients within the hospital. So research done on that a few years ago highlighted that while there can be negative experiences for both male and female doctors in, in a hospital setting, that it is more common for female doctors to experience things like um, bullying or abuse. So we still have quite a long way to go here in Ireland. Is it the same everywhere, especially across Europe? Is it the same or are we just kind of lagging behind here in Ireland? No, I mean, it is the same again across the, across the world. And obviously there are uh, much more significant gender based um, issues in, in some countries than in others. Mm. And um, certainly in the UK and the US, female doctors would um, express very, very similar um, experiences. Some of the countries in Europe would be overall um, better in terms of their gender equality issues around uh, childcare, issues around uh, maternity benefit, maternity leave. Um, but certainly there is no country where where uh, there is um, the exact type of gender equity that would mean that everybody is uh, receiving the same chances in life. I was reading in an article in The Guardian about um, sorting the facts from the fiction and uh, there was um, there's a myth that um, the, the, the typical male brain um, and there's a typical female brain and that there's a difference between the male brain and the female brain. But uh, that has been proven to be untrue. <laughs> so, I mean, like, you know, it really just seems to be a bit crazy that we're still using, uh, you know, men and I think did I read somewhere that it's like a certain age group of men and it white men as well that all of these tests are being carried out on 
Absolutely. Yeah. So again, so you're looking also at, at lots of uh, racial discrimination. Again, if we're looking back at the at the pharmaceutical or drug research. Mm. So this is young, young white men of a certain build with a certain background. And these are the are, are the people that uh, all of the research, certainly traditionally now things have changed a little bit in the last number of years. But, right. um, it, you know, lots of the medications that we have now were researched 20, 30, 40 years ago. So again, excluding issues like race, which we which we know have a significant impact on certain types of, again, medication doses, medication side effects, and that um, those, what we call is, is, is having, you know, blind data. So looking at um, uh, data or numbers or figures and thinking that this means that it covers everybody, that it includes everybody, that it's true for everybody. Mm. Whereas, in fact, if we don't um, disaggregate or, or, or divide up the data according to a person's uh, gender or their race or potentially lots of other things about specific individuals, then we're not treating everybody um, equally. We're not giving everybody the same chance to be sure that the medication is the right one for them. Dr. Sarah Fitzgibbon, a question has come in here from one of our listeners, Noel, and he asks, is there a difficulty getting women to participate in trials? He knows several men who have, but no women. So again, usually what happens is that the trial company is not is not asking women to to participate or in fact may indeed be excluding them. So very often it comes down to uh, what they would say is if a woman is of childbearing years. Um, so if there's a potential that the woman uh, could become pregnant, most trial uh, or research companies uh, do not want to include women in their trial um, because of potential difficulties uh, around uh, women who might become pregnant during the trial. They point that the researchers will say like Professor Neonla would make is that excluding pregnant women from all trials means that then there is no uh, proper scientific based research for pregnant women for the conditions that pregnant women suffer from we'll say for example hyperemesis where you know people might be vomiting mm. day and night become very very unwell and yet any of the medications that would be used for for a condition like that um are not adequately researched because the pharmaceutical companies are very reluctant to put themselves into that space where it's much easier for them to get a load of young white uh, men mm. to come in, take a medication. Um, and, and there are fewer risks. There's never no risks, yeah. um, but they would see it as being less risky to have young men. And just getting back to the hyperemesis medication, of course, there's difficulties with that as, as well with, with funding. So an mm. awful lot of women who are suffering from uh, significant vomiting in pregnancy and they would have difficulty then accessing the medication um, because of, of, of funding related to that, um, which again may, may reflect uh, a bias against medication that would be used specifically in pregnancy. I don't. This is another uh, question that has come in from a listener and I'm not sure if you'll be able to answer this or not, but uh, maybe it's something that you've heard of, that this person says that the HPAT and GAMSAT exams for medicine are geared towards men to try and keep women out. Have you ever heard of that? Yeah, so the HPAT is an extra examination that um, people who are doing their leaving search would have to sit in order to enter mm-hmm. um, medicine. So in the past, you just did your, your leaving search and you got the points and, and if you were lucky and you got in. Um, but uh, a number of years ago, they added this extra HPAT exam. Uh, it's an examination that, first of all, costs um, a lot uh, to to uh, enter. You have to pay to do the exam. Uh, and in addition to that, you also have to pay for a number of grind courses um, because the exam is not something, it's not based on the Leaving Cert syllabus. It's why it's, it's almost like an aptitude test. So, uh, and the um, it, I certainly have heard that, that okay. the reason that it was, one of the reasons it was brought in be, was because so many um, 
uh, women and girls doing their leaving search are achieving such high marks, which is still the, which is the case now, and that on average women will do better in their leaving search than than the boys, um, and that this then was causing uh, an increase in the percentage of women in medical schools, so that we were coming up to maybe seventy percent of a medical class would have been would be women, mm. and. It was felt that because uh, girls were doing better in the Leaving Cert, maybe there was a different way of examining that would allow the boys to have um, an opportunity or a chance to, to, to show their um, intellect in a different way. And this is the HPAT then came in. But as I say, there is a cost, a significant cost involved. So not only is it unequal in the sense that there is there may be this gender aspect to it it mm. is very unequal from the sense that it makes it uh, almost impossible for somebody who does not have a significant amount of generally parental funding um to uh, assist them to both pay for the exam and also to pay for the the grinds that tend to be involved and those grind classes can be a thousand two thousand um you know it's not it's not a small amount of money Thank you very much, Dr. Sarah Fitzgibbon from Women. Thanks very much for joining us on The Opinion Line this morning. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now, 1850 715 996. On Quartz 96 FM. Fiona Corcoran in for PJ Coogan on this Tuesday morning. And just to let you know, to celebrate the release of Ed Sheeran's fifth studio album, Equals, Quartz 96 FM is giving away copies of the album and free tickets to see Ed live at Parky Cueve on Friday, April 29th. Listen to Quartz 96 FM all day this Friday and Saturday to win your way to Ed Sheeran and grab a copy of his new album Equals which is out this Friday the 29th. It's an Ed Sheeran winning weekend this Friday and Saturday only on Cork's 96 FM and I was reading over the weekend actually that uh, Ed Sheeran himself has uh, contracted COVID-19 so I hope that he is okay and that he is doing well and um, I'm sure there are many many people who are looking forward to seeing him when he comes to Parky Cueve next year um, Keep your comments coming in to us on 1850 715 
0818-96-083-396-96-96. And we have been in, uh, contacted by Down Syndrome uh, Cork. They're asking again for help. Um, October is Down Syndrome Awareness Month and um, this person, and, and Genevieve Willers and Georgie have set up an iDonate link for DSC. This will help raise much needed funds that help them to get services like speech, OT, etc. to the young children who need it now. They also help young adults in the field of dreams. Um, they want to know, they, they're, they're, they're trying to raise 500 euro. They're at 350. So if anybody would like to support that, it's iDonate um, that they have a fundraiser on. And it's, um, if you look for Genevieve Willer's page on iDonate, or if you look for Down Syndrome Cork, you can help by donating there on that. And thank you very much to the team for that. Now, my next guest has written many, many children's books, but they're children's books with a a difference. And they're all about trying to raise awareness of inclusivity amongst children. Anna McQuinn, good morning. Hello, good morning. Anna, why has this been such an important issue for you to explore in your children's books? Um, I think it goes back to when I was a kid myself. I mean, when I was growing up in the 70s, we we didn't have a lot of books, particularly picture books. We had a few kind of ladybird books. And then I got into things like Enid Blyton. And, you know, they were all set in boarding schools and there Mm. were like girls called Hilary and Gwendolyn. And I used to think one was called um, Penapole because I'd never heard anybody say Penelope. So in my head, she's always (laughs) been that. Um, and, but you know, it was like reading Harry Potter, really. It was so kind of alien. Um, and then, you know, I got into more of the adventure stories, the like famous five and all those. Mm. Um, but the world wasn't any more kind of real to me. You know, it was all set in English villages and they were drinking, you know, eating watercress sandwiches. I don't know what watercress was. And so in my head, I think, you know, I was always reading. I was always like, you know, not me. I was always somebody else. And particularly mm. because particularly in the in the adventure stories it was all boys. So if I was playing, you know, something from the book or reading, I was always Julian, you know, because he was he got to do all the kind of exciting things. Yeah. Um, and I think when I was about eight or nine, somebody gave me Walter Mackin's uh, Flight of the Doves. And there were two little kids, Finn and Derville, and they were running away from this wicked stepfather. And they decided to run away to their granny in Galway. Mm. And I thought, oh, you know, I've been to Galway. I know what Galway is. And particularly they came over in the boat from London. And then when they arrived, everything was suddenly familiar, like the language, the characters, the food, the words. And suddenly I was kind of in the book. You know, it wasn't this alien separate thing. So... I guess when I came, I mean, I did uh, my love of books continued and I did um, an MA in in UCC, actually, and a dip, the hitch dip. And I taught for a bit. Uh, But when I started in in working in publishing, particularly in children's publishing, I really wanted to have books, particularly with girls and, you know, giving them agency and let them lead the adventures. But being in the UK, I realised that there were lots of kids having that same experience I had growing up where you know, the default story was a white middle class family and they had a house and a garden. And that was excluding so many, mm. you know, black children or children with disabilities or children who didn't live in big houses with gardens. Um, so I guess I wanted to give children the kind of Walter Mackin experience where you see yourself in a book and you you relate to it. And it's your reality and your world and your words and it's familiar and you feel validated by it. So what way do your books address the issues of inclusivity then? Like, and how do they make the topics easy well, to understand? Well, I think, uh, sorry, sorry, you finish your question. 
Yeah, uh, no, I'm just asking, yeah, how, how do they yeah. make uh, these topics easy for children to understand? Well, I think because they're, I mean, they're all for under fives. Um, so they're not so much about inclusion as they are about being included. Mm. So it's not an issue. Like the first one I did in the series that has sold the most is a little girl called Lulu. She's a little black girl called Lulu and she goes to the library and she gets out a book and she comes home. It's like really in another book she gets a cat. Uh, but most of the books about children getting a pet, it's usually a little boy and it's usually a white boy. And then, you know, he brings him home and then they have a nice house and he might, um, particularly with cats, you know, the advice is you put them in the utility for the first week. But, you know, if you don't have a utility room, it's kind of so a lot of the books are they're kind of about being included rather than than about inclusion. So it's about kind of reflecting the reality of of girls and little black kids. Um, and like there is, I guess, what would I say there? There is really important to teach kids, you know, about racism and not to be racist. Yeah. But for me, those books are still focusing on the white child. They're They're teaching the white child not to be racist. And I kind of, for me, I always imagine a small black girl as my reader. And I think if she picks up the first book, she sees somebody like herself and she, oh, that's very exciting. And she opens it and it's actually about racism. Like that must be really disappointing. Like mm. I want to give her a book with an adventure where she goes off and does something exciting and she's included. Um, so for me, including the kids is it's not an issue. It's just they are. It's their right to be in the story and it reflects their lives and it kind of gives them the Walter Mackin moment. And Anna, your books, um, a lot of them are based on series, they're, they're series that are based on different characters like Lulu and Zeke, and they've sold yeah. over a million copies worldwide. Why do you think that they've resonated so much with people? I think, um, I think in the same way as I want to kind of reflect the, the reality of children, I think they take small kids seriously. Um, my, my passion is really early years and I think, you know, really small things matter to small kids and having those in books. Um, I think we sometimes as writers, we try to work hard to make a really, you know, a, a kind of a big complicated story or, or have a punchline at the end. Mm. But most of mine, they're really simple. And like the Zeki books, like there's one where he's going for his uh, swimming lesson. And it's just he packs his togs and they go to the thing and they put them in the locker and they get in carefully and they sing their song and they have coffee and they go home. But what the feedback I get from parents is that kids, they just see themselves and their small world is given a lot of seriousness um, and they see themselves in it. Uh, white kids as well. You know, a lot of black parents will write to me and say this was the first time my kids saw somebody like them in a book. Mm. But loads of white parents write and say he's sleeping with the Zeki can swim under his pillow because he loves it. And they will not have been to a swimming pool. It's just because he practices in the bath and his dad reads him a little story. And I think they just see their lives. It's the same kind of principle. They see their lives kind of validated. Mm. Um, so, and I think, you know, they just see their their world and somebody taking it seriously and they see themselves reflected in their family. So they, they love it. And, you know, I mean, it's great because... Uh, I think I think it's quite a hard thing to pull off to keep it simple but keep it interesting. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I've been very pleased. They've done they've done very well. Fantastic. And I suppose all of the the books are sold in uh, popular bookshops here. Good bookshops here. They are. Yeah. And if they're not, you can order them. And one is on the the CBI list. I mean, I think it's it's fantastic that CBI are um, you know doing this free to be mm. me list because I think um, the teacher in me would feel that. 
um, like I read everything. You know, I didn't see myself in the in the Gwendolyn books, but it didn't matter. I mean, I read if I was sitting on the loo, I'd be reading the ingredients on the shampoo bottle. You know? <laughs> I was one of yeah. those kids who just read everything. Lovely. But having taught, I mean, there are kids who struggle to read. And I think if they're not seeing themselves in literature, they'll just out, opt out of books and everything. So I think it's a great project to kind of grow the readers of tomorrow. Yeah. You know, you have to be inclusive if you want to do that. So brilliant. Uh, I'm really, I'm really happy that the, the one of the Zeki books is on their recommended list. Fantastic. And Anna McQuinn, I'm really happy that you joined us. That was a really interesting conversation. Thanks so much for joining us on the Opinion Line this morning. Now, you may have seen over the weekend that um, uh, Honda bike, it was a vintage kind of a bike, Honda 50, had been stolen here in Cork and was later found burnt out. Brian Leonard, you were the owner of that bike. Good morning. Good morning to you all. It, it's not quite a Honda 50. Um, can you just describe what it was and, and where you got it from? Certainly, yeah. The bike is actually, um, <coughs> pardon me, it's an ex-Japanese postal service Honda 90. <coughs> so they're produced by Honda specifically for the um, Japanese postal service. Um, and that's, that's, that's what makes it a little bit rare, I suppose. And Brian, it was your son had brought it down here. Uh, he's in UCC. Yes, um, David had it down. <coughs> pardon me now. Um, David had it down with him there for about a week, so it was his plan um, to to use it for transport while he was in while he was in college. So, um, unfortunately, then it was taken. Uh, it was taken on Sunday uh, on Sunday evening, and uh, David actually noticed it, uh, heard the bike. He was studying in his room. He's um, and uh, he heard the bike and looked out and saw two young lads. Uh, making away on it. So um, it was a bit surreal and a bit of a shock for David, but um, he did the right thing and reported to the Gardaí straight away and, you know, and, and got the ball rolling on that. And you travelled down, you're from Meath, and you travelled down to Cork yourself over the weekend to help look for it, and it was eventually found burnt out in Knocknahini. It was, yeah. Um, we had, I posted it on Facebook, and, <coughs> pardon me now, in fairness, the, um, the local Cork media were, were really good uh, the Echo and Corpio um, put the story out as well, mm. and I got a huge response from from some great people in Cork, and um, and from my family down there as well. So um, we eventually got some sightings of it around Knocknahini and and whatever, and um, we went up there, my son, myself, and my, and my cousins, and uh, we searched the fields, etc., and eventually found the uh, found the machine. Um, tucked away in undergrowth uh, at, the, at the back of the meadows there in Nottingham. And Brian, the insurance company would class it as a write-off, but you want to mm-hmm. put it back out on the road because it has got sentimental value for yourself. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I, you know, I, I'm an, a motorcycle enthusiast. I'm a very active member of the Vintage Japanese Motorcycle Club in Leinster. And um, those, those guys have been huge, hugely supportive to me as well in the, in the search and the background uh, to, to get this bike recovered. So uh, the bike, no matter if it was only a, a wheel that I recovered from the bike, it mm. would certainly be restored back to its original uh, condition. And that's that's my aim, you know, to put it back and uh, and to give it to David for his transport. And is there much of it left so to repair, like to, to restore? Uh, there, there, there is a fairly decent base. Um, the difficulty will be in sourcing the, the particular parts for the machine because uh, it is only imported to this country, uh, as far as I'm aware, by one company, um, which are retro bikes in Dublin, mm-hmm. and they have to they have to source it from Japan 
uh, at auctions uh, when the postal services are are disposing of their vehicles. You know, so uh, I'll, I'm in that that company has actually reached out and been in contact with me and said that they were they are willing to uh, try and get the parts for me. Um, you know, or be able to source them for me. So that's that's good news to start with that they're that they're willing to try and do that for me. You know, so. And if our listeners are uh, hearing this conversation this morning, is there <clears throat> anything that they can do to help with the repair of the bike? Well, certainly, your listeners have done have done a huge amount already with their with their sightings of the machine and their offers of support and help. Today, the people of Cork have been fantastic. To be honest with you. <clears throat> but um, I have, in response to um, some prompting from the local, from my vintage Japanese motorcycle club, uh, lots of people there wanted to, you know, do the same to try and contribute to the to the repair. So I've set up a GoFundMe page uh, this morning, um, nice. and that can be found on my Facebook profile or indeed through the vintage Japanese motorcycle club Leinster uh, on Facebook as well. So if people want to, I'm I'm overwhelmed with that that people would want to. But yeah. if if they do want to, like any any donation is really very much appreciated. As I said, I want to I want to restore this and not let not let crime win. You know. Yeah, and it just goes to show mm. the divide, doesn't it? Like that there's so many good people out there who are willing to support. And then, of course, you've got these, uh, you know, mindless thugs who just go around stealing things like that and, and burning it for pleasure. I mean, it just, it's it's heartbreaking there, to hear that. It's just awful. It certainly is. You know, you can't, um, like, there are there are people who, who do this. These are only young lads, you know. Mm. And, you know, they, they do this because they don't have a sense of belonging. They, they don't have any effort. They don't see hope. They don't have any opportunity, um, you know. So they so they resort to this, and that's the spiral of stuff that we need to we need to break. You know, I was I retired this year. I was an inspector with the uh, Dublin Airport Police, so I'm familiar with why people behave in these manners, in this manner, and and what prompts it. So, as a society, we have a duty to to try and create those opportunities, give them a sense of hope and a sense of belonging to something that's good. Uh, in order to, to have any chance of breaking this cycle. Okay, Brian, listen, thanks so much and best of luck with the repair of the bike. And if anybody does have any information that can help with the Gardaí investigation into this, um, they can contact their local Garda station. And Brian, of course, has that GoFundMe page set up there as well um, if anybody wants to help out with the repair of the bike. The lines are live. And we're ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. Welcome back to the final hour of the Opinion Line on this Tuesday morning. Fiona Corcoran sitting in for PJ Coogan today and tomorrow. Now, in Balancholic, there's been um, an issue with speeding, particularly in certain areas. And local councillors are saying that they've been inundated with people who are coming to them looking for um, speeding to be addressed in their area. And one of those councillors is uh, Derry Canty. Good morning, Derry. Good morning, Fiona. How are you? I'm very well, Derry. Um, this is something that's going to be raised at the town ca- or at the city council meeting. But um, what are people in Ballincollig saying about this? Like over the last number of years, uh, we have seen even with the pandemic, things were so quiet that there was only cars coming and going, 
and everything. But over the years, sorry, just to go re- reflect back, over the years, there was an awful lot of speeding being reported in through all our, all our estates. But since the pandemic, you see cars on the road. No kids are going back to school. They're cycling mm-hmm. and the, 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 the weather is good. So they're walking and everything like that. But it's the speeding through our estates. Number numerous estates have been in contact with me and with other councillors, and I agree that something will have to be done, whether to speed ramps, signage. But as far as I'm concerned, and I can see it day by day, even when I'm living in Musgrave Estate with the school hours and everything like that, no one seems to worry about speeding. They're all on a mission. They're on a mission, you know, to collect the kids and get back home and everything. I suppose, you know, things were so quiet that they could fly through the estates. But nowadays, they'll have to slow down. One of those estates that you mentioned is on Cashlawn, which is which people are using as a shortcut to avoid, avoid the junction of Castle Road and Barry's Road. That is correct. That is correct. They come in from the western side of the, the, the town. No, we can't call it a village anymore, although we'd still call it a village. The point is that they come in up the ramp, up off the, the bypass, down the back road, in through the estate, as you say, avoiding that corner. But they're also using Muskery Estate as well, due to the fact that if they go up Flynn's Road, which they're using this on Cashlawn Estate as a shortcut as well, to cut mm. away from the corner, their point is... They're cut by traffic on the main road, east and west. There's no traffic lights at that junction when they come onto the main road. So they're also using Musgrave Estate. They're using in the Scaraview. Every estate is being looked at at the moment from residents, and we're getting nothing but requests for neither speed ramps, slow signs. Even the school has been in contact with me here, the Scalvera, in relation now. And that school is within an estate. It's within Musgrave Estate. Mm. And they're looking for more signs to be put down to please ask the uh, parents and traffic that's entering, coming in, you know, to, to slow down. It ma- I'd imagine that a couple of signs being put up wouldn't cost that much money. It's not, it's, it's no problem. Like the council, all right, have, uh, have a budget to work off and they've taught me that. But the local engineer here has put it down on his, for his request and for our request. And that's why another councillor uh, has raised it as well on the local area roads meeting mm-hmm. for uh, tomorrow in relation to the same thing to see, can we get a budget? But that's not the point. The point is speeding is gone. It's, it's a pandemic now, basically speeding through our estates. Yeah, yeah. Everyone seemed to be on a road. Even not alone in Musgrave Estate now, or in Cashlawn, but on Touring Glass, every estate is having problems with speeding. Right across the whole town. So would you be calling on people then today to slow down, particularly when they're going through these estates? Sure, we have flashing signs as well. We have three or four of our estates. We have one going down to a school, down to a Ballancolic Community mm. School, down to Community Road. There's a sign there, 30 mile kilometre. There we have flashing signs going down towards the school. You come out of uh, any of our estates, 30, 30 kilometres is even fast enough. Mm. But like they're not even adhering to that. And even on Beach Road here in Musgrave Estate, we have three speed ramps. We have... have is flashing sign telling you how what mileage you're doing. And on one occasion, I saw a car doing 48 kilometres through the sign. Yeah. Now, the Gardaí, we have our two community Gardaí and fair play to him, and I give him credit. And the sergeant here in Ballincollig, Michael Morris, he has put Gardaí on our roads here 
to, you know, and they have spoken to a few people mm. in relation to speeding. But like, again, they can't be everywhere. We Some people say we have the traffic core stationed in here in Ballancolic, but they're the traffic core for the main roads, not for other states. And like, if these people come in, they will hammer them. There will be no reneging. There will be no reneging and putting out, uh, you know, fines for speeding and everything. But we have two community guardians who are working with us mm. in neighbourhood watch and so forth to try and see if we can get them to slow down. That's all we're asking. Slow down. And I mean, like, you know, we certainly don't want an incident where somebody gets knocked down by a car because of speeding, do you know. So, you know, the time is to take action now. Well, we are, you see, and the point is like that, as I said initially at the start, Fiona, we had two years this year quietness, mm-hmm. you know, you know, the pandemic and everything was down, quiet, cool, and then you had the summer holidays. Now we're going in now to the dark evenings again coming on. And as you know yourself, kids are going out still with trick and treating next week, hopefully, God, that nothing happens. But mm-hmm. these are things that you have to look at. You have to be prepared for all these eventualities. But the way people are just, they don't see the signs. I often ask the guardian above there, is the signs needed? And they said, Derry, we have to do it. Even coming into all our estates at the moment, you have 30 miles, 30 kilometre mm-hmm. signage. It makes no difference. And as I said, on Beach Road alone, we have three ramps and you have a flashing a, a, a speed sign telling you what speed you're doing. And they, they don't even see them. And this is the frustrating of some of the parents. And now, as you know yourself, we're all supposed to go on our bicycles. We're all supposed to walk and do everything like this. But like people are afraid. Yeah. Derry, and I'm sure that Ballancolic is not the only area as well. I'm sure there are other areas right across Cork County um, and indeed many areas in the city where people are the same, where they feel that there's just cars going far too fast in their area and it's such a risk to people. And I think the message to give out this morning is for people, like whatever about putting in speed ramps and, and signs, the message is to just slow down. It is. And like, it's not alone. OK, it's not say we we represent, I represent now right in uh, Bishopstown and in Toker as well. Mm. They're all like, coming on to us in relation to even up, uh, up Sarsfields Road. We have two major, three major estates above there. They're all calling for speed signs and for uh, ramps and so mm. forth like that. So basically, like, you would have to go to the government to national government for money in relation to what's needed if you were supposed to do everything, every estate. And I even in our own Corrigine Road, mm. you can see yourself inside that the traffic has increased, increased. And, you know, and we have made bicycle lanes. We try to make things safer for everyone to cycle and everything like that. But it's just that people seem to be in a rush all the time, coming mm. and going. Their lifestyles have changed and whatever it is. And all we're saying to people, I'm asking them, please, and I'll be raising it again. I'll be supporting the fellow councillors tomorrow at our local area meeting ask to get out, get out something. Please, please slow it down. Remember, it's not on your road. There might be an accident in other places. And especially when you're going into your estates, slow down children to play in the estates. Councillor Derry Canty, thanks very much for joining us on the Opinion Line. Let us know, are you in an area where there's a lot of speeding going on? 1850 715 PJ Coogan. Call us now, 1850 715 996. On Courts 96 FM. Fiona Corcoran in for PJ Coogan today. Um, just I was talking to Derry County there about speeding in the area, and I know that. Um, 
he had mentioned Bishopstown and the Curraheen area and I've noticed in recent weeks um, a couple of young fellas on a scrambler bike in the area and uh, do you know has anybody else had an issue with scrambler bikes in their area it puts the fear of God in me when I hear it because they're they're driving on a, a public walkway and there's lots of kids going around and um, do you know I, I, I don't I don't know myself like what what's the law around that like are they supposed to be in those areas are they supposed to be on, on cycle and walkways um, you might let us know 1850 715 996 0833 96 96 96 um, and also uh, to remind you as well as part of Irish Music Month this October in association with Hot Press Cork's 96 FM is committed to supporting and discovering new Irish music the final of the Cork's 96 FM local hero talent search has taken place and singer song Songwriter Fintan McCahey from West Cork was crowned the winner with his original songs Lost Balloons and Platinum. Flint Fintan will now go on to compete against acts from all over Ireland where the overall winner will receive €5,000 in cash, €5,000 worth of music equipment, their single released on the Rubyworks Records label, guaranteed radio play on 25 radio stations in Ireland and we wish him all the very best in the final. Irish Music Month on Cork's 96FM is supported by the BAI Sound and Vision Fund and XL Retail offering a great deal more at your local store. Now, there was also news there recently that breakdancing has been confirmed for the Olympics 2024. And joining me now is Jason Ng and Griff Rolofsson. And uh, Jason, if I just start with you, um, the, um, the the, the breakdancing in the Olympics has been um Great, but you wanted to talk about the the language around it that it's not actually called breakdancing anymore. <laughs> it's it's a, that's an interesting point. Yeah, breakdancing is actually a term that emerged in the nineteen eighties, uh, which was essentially manufactured by media companies who were trying to captivate the energy of hip hop arts and really, you know, package it in this commodifiable way. And breakdancing became the term that was used by and appeared across newspapers, magazines, radios, televised broadcasts around the world. And that's what it became known as in the mainstream. But dancers, Mm -hmm. B-boys, B-girls, and everyone involved in hip-hop culture actually never used the term breakdance to describe what we do. So what we actually are doing is breaking. That's how we've tried to, you know, describe the dance to how we've we've communicated it mm. so breakdance is actually a misnomer for what we actually are doing so there's been a lot of effort in trying to negotiate that that term back you know after a, a fairly large misunderstanding um but yeah so hopefully that sort of that that opens up a bit of dialogue about where we are with our culture and like trying to you know communicate that properly and has the name been officially changed in the olympics yeah, I mean, the, that's a, a really big win. I think uh, a lot of B-boys and B-girls who are involved in the Olympic process and getting breaking into the Olympics in the first place uh, really fought to make sure that our culture is represented and is being represented. There are obvious concerns about how, you know, institutionalizing a dance form that has a, a rich history already and, and, and framing it as a sport can also often, you know, open different conversations and, and trigger different opinions around what, what's you know how it's being treated is it being exploited Mm. but i think there are a lot of people who have taken on the roles in these organizations to really try and negotiate and uh and make sure that our culture is seen and and heard as well and uh jason you're uh, based in ucc and um the you study breaking and um you're you know talking about it going into the olympics now um do we all like 
to get a sport like this recognised in the Olympics must be a massive thing for for you guys. Yeah, it's a it's an incredible it's an incredible moment. Um, whether the the it, it will be truly beneficial and you know how it's all going to roll out is yet to be seen you know we, we've seen some really interesting success with the youth olympic games um but of course there are there are so many you know opportunities that come from this you know there, there are it's it's becoming legitimized to a in different places where it wasn't being seen before and you know there's an, a whole economy around this that that will open up as well um so there's there's definitely interesting events on the horizon for 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 b-boys and b-girls participating in in um into the future and there is a global hip-hop study special issue breaking and the olympics so if anybody wants to read that to find out about it um where can they get that from uh that's available on intellect books uh griff and i have uh, been working with uh, my co-author mary fogarty on uh, making sure it's open access and available um all the papers will be are written by either scholars who are dancers most of most mm-hmm. of them are, are practice-led pieces um so we encourage people if they are looking for information from around the world we have perspectives from philippines south africa the us australia um, and europe all across europe and in ireland and in the you know, everywhere. We really encourage people to get involved. Come to our sessions as well. Uh, we, we have a m- monthly uh, speaker series where we get researchers to present their ideas, to, to share with the community. And so we have this sort of uh, multi-directional dialogue being open. So it's not just, you know, research in a bubble. We're really trying to get people involved from the community to say their piece, to have an influence on how things are being understood and and just sort of make sure that we're we're getting the community to understand what's happening around them because i think that what history has sort of told us is being disconnected and and not unified in our understanding of what we're doing and where we're at uh makes it really difficult to sort of uh anticipate any problems or or things into the future so it's good to to have a community of practice where people can really tap in and get involved and what type of academic debate happens around breaking um, a lot of it is really about how much of this process, especially if we're talking about in relation to the Olympics, is how much of our cultural identity is going to be um, preserved, you know, our history, our, our, our traditions and, and all, all of the practices and, and what sort of ethical standard are we holding ourselves to to make sure that we, we, we make sure that those things are communicated and, and not, um, I guess, lost to the institutionalization or the promise of money or commercial outcomes as well. So there's a, a big tension around what this institutionalization will do for breaking or what breaking can do for this institutionalization, you know, the institutionalization of dance sport as part of the Olympics. So um, lots of sort of debate around where it's going, what benefits there are, who it benefits over who, but it's a really important discourse and I think it's an important uh, conversation to be had. And it's, we, we're lucky that we're having it now ahead of, you know, ahead of t- uh, Paris 2024. Um, and people can still get involved and we can still develop and build and, and um, make sure that if there are issues, we can iron them out. And hopefully there yeah. are people who are in roles which, you know, can make those, those, um, those issues heard to people who are talking about it in the IOC. And what are the conclusions of all these discussions? Like what core values are being treasured by the meetings? I think for for the most part, like we really just wanted to open up a platform where researchers who are looking into this moment, you know, looking into the dance, researching the the sort of socio-historic perspectives to get feedback from people and to like 
essentially connect the communities around the world in a way that, you know, every every sort of, I guess, country has their own community culture that's connected to different places through people, through through media, through internet, you know. Uh, but I think a lot of the time these these conversations Oh, we seem to have conversations are happening happening in ice so at least bring them together we've we've really been able to at least build the fundamental part of hip-hop culture for me which is a community and i think that's the most important thing that's uh essentially come of it jason you're in australia and asia at the minute and uh, what's happening with the breaking scene over there is it different to what's happening over here yeah, I mean, I think breaking in Australia is particularly um, has been particularly isolated for a long time. Um, we're sort of in the in you know the South Asia Pacific, and uh, it's it's fairly competitive. It's still doing you know we're, we're still reprising our cultural traditions. There's a lot of people um, participating, but you know I would say in Asia there's a, a really higher degree of professionalization of dance. Um, there's a sizable difference in the participating communities. Uh, especially in places like Japan and Korea, you know, if, if I could give a, a sort of comparable rough statistic that was quoted to me once, um, if you look at something like Australia, we may have, you know, five, 600 people, B-boys and B-girls participating across the country, whereas in Japan, it might be 25,000. Mm. Um, the, the concentration of dancers in Japan is, is astounding. And they've got industry around them supporting them as well. They've got a, a very particular model, which has allowed them to flourish. So it's it's quite different in, in Asia than it is in a lot of other places. And uh, Griff Rolofsson, you're um, involved with UCC Hip Hop. What's the scene like here? Yeah, thanks for having us. Um, yeah, so the Cypher, Jason's part of the Cypher project at UCC, which is um, funded by the European Research Council. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the whole idea is, you know, looking at how different hip hop cultures like breaking um, exist in different parts of the world. So, for instance, um, you know, just this summer we did a um, an event called Ubuntu, actually in September, um, where we brought the Cork Migrant Center together with uh, youth from the Cabin Studio. Yeah. And part of that, a big part of that, was dance. There weren't um, traditional breakers. But in the past, we've had um, the Rebel Rockers are the crew in uh, Cork here. Uh, the, uh, or excuse me, the Rhythm Rebels here in Cork City. And it's the Limerockers in Limerick, which is where Toby Omoteso comes from, um, who's this amazing dancer in, um, in Ireland. I still don't know if he is going to represent Ireland in the mm. Olympics, but we need to talk to him. We, ha- we have some amazing dancers here that put their own spin um, so to speak, on uh, on the breaking traditions, um, you know, bringing them together with Irish uh, dance traditions. Or, for instance, Toby um, comes from a he's a Nigerian um, Irish background. You know, bringing their backgrounds into the dance, and that's one of the things that Cipher is really interested in: is how how do different communities use hip hop, whether it's music or dance around the world, how do they localize it and make it their own? Yeah, I was just going to ask you actually about Ireland and uh, would we have Team Ireland in the Olympics representing um, uh, breaking? What, what, do you think that that's a possibility? Can you see it happening in, in 2024? Absolutely. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm, th- I'm really excited to see um, how, it, how it goes here. There's been some discussion. Again, Toby's the main one that I know. Yeah. Um, but um but yeah there are a lot of other um let's see Ines and I'm trying to remember some other folks 
there's a there's another I think Polish Irish dancer. Okay. I'm, not, I'm forgetting his name now, but there's some really high level um, competition. And and like Jay says, um, you know, the challenge is going to be whether which places um, are are sort of a more cultural, um, you know, small underground communities versus these large really um, places where where the comp, where dance where breaking is already. Um, used as a as a, in a competitive environment and what's valued so is yeah. it sort of you know is it the athleticism or is it the style um and I'm, these are the discussions that they've they're having um in terms of on, on these sessions that jace is hosting um yeah. what is valued and yeah so like ireland on the breaking scene i mean like we're we're considered quite um you know competent i suppose aren't we that like we're we're ahead of other countries i think um, possibly above uk and germany when it comes to breaking yeah i'm i'm not even sure i'm in ter- again this is in terms of the the values um it's like like uh, jace was saying um what are <laughs> it depends on what gets valued i don't know if we'll be up there like we were in terms of uh uh rowing mm, yeah. <laughs> in the olympics I, I don't know we'll be if we'll be gold medal level but i think we will be in the discussion yeah um and yeah that's i mean it's the it, it will certainly um this this uh cultural form from hip-hop you know that the history that jace is talking about um we don't want to forget that history of you know uh, black and latino youth yeah. who didn't have anything who who took a piece of cardboard out um, onto the streets or in the subways and developed this art form. And that's what's at stake when Jace talks about, you know, what the values of this art form. We don't want it to just become um, something that is just, um, I don't want to say just athletics, Mm. but we want to remember, tell that story, that term, the break, the breaks, it comes from uh, mixing two, to uh, the break of a disco record or a funk record where you just loop and that's the the chance for the dancers to really do their thing. And like knowing that history is an important part of this music. And Griff, if anyone listening here wants to get involved in breaking here in Cork, where can they go? Like, can they contact you or, you know, is there lessons that they can take somewhere? Yeah, absolutely. There there are lessons. Um, Ines used to have a studio. You know what? Uh, Follow us at, at Global Cypher on um, Twitter, at global and then C-I-P-H-E-R. And I'll post some links up there. You can okay. check us out there to get get involved. Fantastic. And um, a listener has been in touch here to say, who do you think would get uh, gold in the Olympics 2024? Would it be Japan? Turn that over to Jace. What, <laughs> yeah, what do you think, Jace? Oh, it's, uh, I mean, at this, I mean, yeah, it's hard to tell. They're, everyone's moving very quickly and they're such high you know, highly skilled, highly professional dancers competing at this high level as well. So I, I would say, you know, US has a, has a strong hand in it. Um, Japan definitely has a, some front runners in the game. Um, they took out, I believe the, uh, youth Olympic game medal or two of the youth Olympic games medals, which were, were, you know, the the first of the breaking Olympic game medals to be handed out, some of them went to Japan. So yeah. I wouldn't be surprised to see Japan in the in the finals again. Fantastic. Is France, yeah. the host country, I think, has a strong tradition too. Is it called smurfing there, Jace? Not sure. Yeah, I've heard that term for breaking, for b-boying is uh, smurfing in France. 
Smurfing. Okay, well, that's one that we have to keep an eye on so as well. <laughs> Listen, Griff and Jason, thank you so much for joining us um, on that. And we'll definitely be keeping an eye out for um, an Ireland representative at the Olympics um, in 2024. A couple of months ago, PJ had spoken to a lady called Mary Angeline Lasso, who was talking about um, laughing yoga and the importance of laughing yoga. And she has now written a book. She's used her time during uh, lockdown to write a book and it's called inner gift and it's aimed at people who are maybe finding difficulty with um, you know or or trying to regain control of their health and well-being maybe they've been going through a particular time of stress and um, that that be in their professional or their personal life and Marie was saying that this book will help people Marie how is this book going to help people good morning Good morning, Fiona. Lovely to talk to you and good morning to all the listeners. Um, well, I am sharing mostly from my own direct experience, but also the work that I've done with clients over the years. Hmm. And uh, tried and tested, basically, you know, a lot of people that would have come to me over the years would have at some level or another been looking for ways to relieve stress. Uh, stress is part and parcel of life, of course. But the last 18 months especially have been quite stressful for many people. And this book, Inner Gift, it's all about meditation, is it? And and trying to look within yourself to have a better outcome in life. Well, there are definitely a lot of meditation and mindfulness as part of the book. But I, I guess uh, there's, there's, it's a way of living as well, a way of relieving stress in many different ways. And a lot of it would include part of my personal story. It's not an autobiography as in I am not relating my whole life story, but there are elements of my story that are related. And then other other elements are based on work I've done with people, but obviously to preserve people's anonymity, I've changed a lot of details. Mm. Um, but so there are kind of what you call case case studies or little stories in it. And then there's a little bit of me explaining a little bit about how, what you can do in certain situations. And then in each chapter, there is an exercise. And altogether, we have 15 audiovisual, uh, 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 I was going to say meditation, but 10 of them are meditation and five are exercise. And they are actually on my YouTube channel, but there's a direct access through a QR code, which is, I think, quite novel. I don't know many people have done that yet. Um, so you, so you open each the book. chapter in the book has its own QR code that you can scan on your phone and it'll bring you then to the to your YouTube. Is that the way it works? Uh, not necessarily each chapter, but each uh, meditation or exercise. So, for example, let's take an example. There is a peace meditation, which is part of chapter four. So when you get to the end of chapter four, so you've had the, the case study, so to speak, you know, the story, you've yeah. had my teaching around it. And then you get to the exercise and I've actually typed the whole piece meditation in the book. But there's also a QR code right at the top of the meditation. If you get one of those um, scanner on your phone, which some of them you can get for free. You can actually scan the QR code and it leads you directly to the peace meditation on the YouTube channel. So you don't have to root through the whole channel. You're directly at the correct meditation. And is there a different technique and a different exercise for different areas of different things that you're going through in life? Like, is there one for stress? Is there one for maybe disbelief in yourself? Is there one for panic attacks? Is there like, is there a different one that we can adopt to whatever we're going through in our life? So. 
I suppose each person is different and each situation is different. So what I've tried to do is to to put together the meditation and exercise to suit the chapter I was talking about. But of mm. course, people might feel different application for them as well, you know. So it depends on what, what your situation is. But um, I start, the first meditation is a more straightforward one that a lot of people may be familiar with, which is the body scan. So that's scanning your whole body to find a part of the body that may feel tense or stressed and encouraging this part of your body to relax. Um, so there is, as I mentioned before, a peace meditation. There is another exercise which is called straw breathing, which some people may have heard of before or not, but it's basically breathing through a straw. And it may sound a bit strange, but mm -hmm. actually when you breathe through a straw, it, it does elongate your out-breath. And the out-breath, of course, is how you release stress for the, for, from your body and from your mind and emotions. So that particular straw breathing meditation would be paired up with a chapter where I'm talking about feeling overwhelmed. Right. And I certainly applied that technique when I was many, many years ago and I was still working in office. And I used to find a time that I would go to the loo and just literally breathe because, you know, I felt a bit overwhelmed. And then I would go back to my desk and I was able to deal with it. So obviously, if you don't have a straw, you can do it as well. You just purse your lips, make a circle with your lips and pretend you were strawing your mouth. And it actually works just as effectively. And how and long then are you supposed to breathe out for, like for to relieve that stress? Then is it is there a certain number that amount of seconds that you're supposed to have? So, well, the the way I would do it would be it, it, each person is different, of course. There is a guidance in the book as to like counting, like maybe in your head, like. But actually, it's even better sometimes to do it more intuitively, because depending on the capacity of your lungs. You might have, you might be able to take a very long in breath and a very long out breath, where some people might not. Okay. So, the point is not about how long it is, but more about trying to get to the very end of the out breath to let go of all the stale breath from your body. And then, when you breathe in again, you can really fill your lungs with this oxygen and all the, the new energy as well that comes mm. with it. So, if you're um, feeling really stressed at work, you just think you just recommend taking a few minutes just even if it's just to go down to the toilet and doing these deep breathing exercises and help you kind of um, refocus oh yeah you don't even have to go to the toilet that's, that's what I used to do because I was shy but <laughs> so you, you can know. do it sitting at your office desk <laughs> you can do it you know what these days I, I've done quite a bit of um you know of teaching online and be before obviously before the pandemic I was teaching directly in people's offices but the last year and a half it's been more online but it's really uh, people don't even have to leave their desk there's a lot of things can be done at the desk yeah. but like chapter four in particular would would be talking about you know what's been experienced the last 18 months and also for people say working from home and uh, who may have for example find that their workload seems to have increased instead of decreased by working from home because obviously all this Zoom, Zoom or other type of, of um, meeting can sometimes take more time than if you were in the office and you could just nip around the corner to your colleagues and ask a question quickly. And sometimes when you're working from home, it's hard to differentiate between the home life and, and the work life. Well, especially I talk to people who for a reason or another didn't have a home office in their home. Yeah. So they had to work from their bedroom. And they were saying to me, you know what, like by lunchtime, I still wouldn't have left my bedroom because I would I would wake up and straight at my computer. And, yeah. you know, and, and I would be inside my home for the whole day. 
you know, so in case like that, I would advise, well, look, you know, leave your desk from time to time, even if you just go to the kitchen and pour a glass of water, herbal tea or something like that. And at lunchtime, get outside and go for a walk in the fresh air. You know, even if you just go around the block or maybe you have a park nearby or a green area not too far from where you live and work. Those little things don't need to be, you know, you don't have to be a, a yoga practitioner or or be an athlete or anything like that. It's just yeah. very simple technique that everybody can do. And that's what I try to do with this book, that it's accessible to anybody. And Marie, if anybody wants to have a read of your book, where can they find it? So the book is at the printer as we speak and is will be <laughs> will be available in about a week first. or two. <laughs> I, yeah, you got me first. You're the first the first interview I do about it. Um but um it can be uh, it can be pre-ordered through my website uh, which is b uh, sorry bestressfree.ie yes b e s t r e s bestressfree f r e e be stress free that I am so you can order it that way or you can um, contact me directly as well no I, I haven't I haven't yet been organized enough to uh, see whether you know other way of selling it but mm. presumably I will I will go about that in the in the next few days well, listen, but, um, Marie, best of luck with it all and we'll definitely be keeping an eye out for that and uh, thanks for joining us on the opinion line this morning can we just the Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083-396-9696. On Corks 96 FM. Now, earlier I was speaking to Councillor Derry Canty about speeding in Ballancolic and in particular in estates that are being used as through roads. And he was making the point that, um, you know, during the pandemic, roads were quiet, but now as kids are back at school, people are just flying up and down the states and um, he's afraid that something serious is going to happen and there is going to be a motion tabled at City Council to try and have some sort of speed safety measures installed in these areas. Uh, Somebody has been on to say to us, could Derry do something with the people coming out of super value near the White House bar as people living in the estate next to it haven't a chance some days with the speeding out of it. Um, And Maeve has been in touch to say... I live in an estate with a school at the end of the road. It's not in Ballancolic, but it's the parents dropping and collecting are the ones who are speeding in the SUVs and massive Jeeps. And they're just thinking about their own child. Anybody else have any issues with speeding in their areas? Um, you know, especially now with the schools back up and running. 1850-715-996-083-396-9696. And... Um, I will be back in again for PJ tomorrow and then he will be back on Thursday and Friday. And if you want to comment on anything over the next couple of days, it's 1850-715-996-083-396-9696. And I was reading there, uh, there's um, a new record store after opening up in uh, Cork. It's called 33 Records and it's on McCurtain Street. And... Um, it, the, it's, it's an amazing story actually it's this uh, couple called Claudia Hernandez and um, her husband Erwin and they came over from Mexico seven years ago and uh, they saw this um, store that was for sale on Facebook adverts and um, they decided to buy it and they've opened it up now so if anybody is ever in the area it's somewhere that you might be able to pop in and have a look at and I believe Claudia is on the line now. Good morning Claudia 
Hello, good morning. How are you? I'm okay. How are you? <laughs> All good, thank you. How is business going in 33 Records? Oh, it's getting very better, definitely. Yeah. It's only open two months ago, but just um, can we just go back to when you bought the place? Um, it, it was on Facebook Marketplace, is that right? Yes, that's that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Which is kind of amazing because, you know, we always kind of associate like, you know, old furniture and uh, baby products yeah. have been sold in there, but not an actual <laughs> shop. <laughs> no, no, no. It's uh, kind of funny. I I couldn't believe it that it would be true uh, because it was like the whole shop, you know. And uh, well, yeah, it's secondhand records. But anyway, it's like the whole shop for sale in Marketplace. So, yeah, that's why, uh, I don't know, I suppose... Um, we saw it and talk about it. <laughs> yeah. And yourself and your husband came over from Mexico City to Cork seven years ago, but you were coming over for work um, and, uh, you know, you weren't, I, I don't think when you came over here that you had ever anticipated uh, owning a record store in Cork City. No, no, not at all. Uh, actually, we didn't came directly from Mexico City. We first were living in Spain for a while okay. and uh, in Malaga and then in Barcelona and then uh, we moved over uh, to Cork. Yeah. And why Cork? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to Cork. <laughs> yeah. And, and why did you decide to come to Cork? Well, it, in that moment, uh, was only the job. We were needing a change. Mm. Um yeah, we were needing a change and uh, for and, and the work basically. So he got this job offer. Yeah, it was very nice and interesting and doing something a bit different and challenging. And then when we moved uh, to Cork, I immediately found a job teaching Spanish. Right. And then I found a job in IT too. So it was like uh, a nice welcoming. And now you have the record store as well. And is it just yourself and your husband running the store? Yeah, yeah. For the moment, it's only both of us. Mm. Well, he still ha- he still has uh, his job. Mm. So he's here, but sometimes he's working. And uh, But in general, I'm full-time in, in the shop. And it is a record store, but you are hoping to turn it into a gig space as well. Well, definitely could be something definitely uh the first thing that we are going to try is just playing a record from a musician that uh yeah he come to us and we had a chat and uh he wants to play it's not like a proper gig because uh, he's a singer so he will play the the records and that would be the first attempt but we'll see because the shop it's quite small so With the restrictions right now, we we cannot do anything really. Yeah. But yeah, that would be cool. Like uh, we we love local bands. We are trying to support them. Uh, we have their records, their tapes, or everything. So yeah, and I think that can be something. And is it old and new, like secondhand and new records that you sell, or is it mainly all secondhand? Um, let's say that. Uh, 80% is secondhand, mm-hmm. and we just introduced last week the, the new records. They are sealed and everything. But I think we're, we're going to keep the, the, the secondhand definitely because there are things that are not uh, reused 
reissued, sorry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so you cannot find it any any other way. Um, and um, I think you were looking forward to the Jazz Weekend. You were hoping that um, a lot of uh, music fans would be into your store. How is the, how is the Jazz Festival for you? Oh, it's great. Uh, these people of the Jazz at the Victorian Quarter made a great job. And uh, all the the street was very vibrant and yeah, all good vibes. And yeah, we definitely had our best weekend ever <laughs> since Fabulous. we opened. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was a great thing. Well, onwards and upwards. So thank you so much for joining us, Claudia, and best of luck with the store. That's it for today. Now, my thanks, of course, to Fergal Barry, who is editing and producing the show today, and to Wayne Hilton, who is helping me out on the desk. I will be back tomorrow. Thanks. Enjoy your day. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.